Friends, good morning again. Lovely to be working through this fantastic part of the Bible together. And no one likes being seasick, do they? Now we're joking with the kids about that, being blown back on some forwards. On the screen for you is a picture of uh, the sail training ship Lewin, a beautiful three-masted bar contained that's based in Fremantle, Western Australia, um, which I got seasick on uh, when I was in Year 10 and went on a, a youth development voyage uh, for 10 days out of Darwin across the Kimberley coast and back again. Uh, even though it wasn't monsoon or cyclone season, uh, things got uh, pretty. The seas got pretty heavy, and, uh, and we had a great time. At 55 metres long uh, and, and 30 metres to the top of the mast, which, believe me, has a pretty spectacular view. She's a beautiful ship. But getting seasick isn't much fun. And on my voyage, there was a poor bloke called Six Meals Andy. We called him Six Meals Andy because for nearly every day of the voyage, he insisted on eating three meals. I'm going to find that he would see them all again. <laughs> it wasn't much fun for Anne. But as unpleasant as seasickness is, it's nothing compared to shipwreck. Next photo, this is not the Lewin, but just to help us have a different image in mind. Because when we read that verse that we've just shared with the kids and, and we've read again now towards the end of our passage today, it's very tempting to see a fairly sort of mundane picture of seasickness. And yet I think we meant to actually appreciate the gravity of shipwreck. Something much scarier than just being tossed backwards and forwards, but actually being blown right off course. From verse 14, this is the contrast that God needs us to feel the weight of. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. That's an image of a life that is all at sea, tossed around by every new idea and, and competing claim of how to know God, of, of how life should be lived or where happiness is really found. Now some of us have felt that in our own life experience and long for the relief of feeling like we've actually got our feet on solid ground. Many of us look on at people that we know and love, and they seem to live this out every day, one way or another. But fortunately, this infant, this sorry, this image, as graphic as it is, of, of an infant being tossed back and forth in, in a stormy ocean, that isn't the main focus of our passage today. It's the contrast. It's the contrast that helps us to see what a wonderful thing God offers us in Christ. You know, the kids this morning, they got, they got that, I hope for them, fairly tangible reminder of what we were picturing last week, that the other image that Paul presents is a contrast of a tree deeply rooted in the love of God that is in Christ. And that's where he finished at the end of chapter 3. And, and now from... From the end of chapter 3, starting in the chapter 4, all the way through to the end of this letter, he's really helping us to understand what that looks like to live it out, to live a life that is deeply rooted in the love of God in Christ. And so he gives us a heading for it. We've read it in verse 1 of chapter 4 there. And if any of you are looking for the outline of the sermon on the Sunday Hub, I just realised as I went to get up here that I forgot to put it up there. So you'll only find last week's outline. That's not very useful to you. Apologies. But if you're taking notes... What we see in chapter 4, verse 1, serves us as a heading for really the, the whole rest of the book. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, given it's a heading, 
uh, which we're going to have ringing in our ears as we move through this over the next couple of weeks. I think it's worth just noting a few things about this. First, what is the calling that we've received? Is it a calling to a particular job or, or a place or a relationship, as the word is sometimes used by people? Well, a good rule of thumb when we're coming to a passage in the Bible and we're trying to work out you know, what, what's, what's being talked about here, what has this word being used, is to start in concentric circles. Look at the immediate context. Is it used elsewhere around it, and then kind of work out from there. And in just a couple of verses later, in verse 4, Paul talks about Christians as people who have been called to one hope, which rings a bell in our ears because we remember that back in chapter 1 he talked about the hope that he prayed the Ephesians would know, the hope to which God had called them. And there in chapter 1, the future hope that is on you is the certain hope that God will bring his plans to their final end, that things will be set to rights when, when all of creation is set under the lordship of Christ on full view. So then we keep taking the circle out, and this calling that we've received, this, this calling to hope, well, that's put into the wider context of the New Testament, the, the certain hope of Jesus' return to make all things new. And that's, that helps us to understand what's being talked about here in chapter 4. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received, the, the invitation to hope in eternal life in the Lord Jesus. Well, secondly then, what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of that? Because our ears can hear that and it can sound a little bit like Paul is suddenly like saying, live in a way that deserves the calling that you've received. But straight away, we should be going, this doesn't fit with the last three chapters that we've read. Because Paul spent all of this time talking about God's grace, how undeserving we are of his mercy and his loving kindness, that none of us can earn God's favour, that we can't repay the debt. And that's because that word, we use it in the same way in English too, it's not so much deserving of, but rather consistent with. So live a life consistent with the hope you have in Christ. But what does it look like? Well, like any heading, right, it needs to be filled out with its content, and that's what we're going to see in the chapters that follow. And in particular, the first place Paul takes us to is, is our relationships. That they are relationships of grace. But the relationships described, they set the bar so incredibly high that I think if you're honest, it kind of feels like no one could actually put it into practice. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So much easier said than done. Impossible, really, if what we're meant to do is kind of grit our teeth and try really hard to be really humble. I'm really patient to put each other, put up with each other when we when we rub each other the wrong way. But we get a hint of what's going on in verse three. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That helps us to understand that this isn't something that's just from within ourselves. Grit our teeth, be more humble, be more gentle. Because the peace that the Paul has on view is the peace that God brings when. When he, he brings us under the sound of the gospel, when he works in us by his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually flags for us that this is a supernatural project. 
There's nothing kind of natural or, or normal about this. It is only the Spirit who can enable us to live this out. Because if we're honest, being completely humble, gentleness, patience, forbearance and love, this doesn't come naturally to us. It's the work of the Spirit as he applies the gospel to our life, as he unites us with Jesus, and therefore he actually unites us with each other as well. And in fact, that unity that we have with each other is meant to point beyond ourselves to the unity of God himself. That's what Paul terms as he, as he, as he runs through this, this one spirit and the one Lord and one God and Father of us all, the, the spirit who creates the church, the Lord Jesus in whom we trust and whom, who has washed us clean, and the Father who reigns over it all. So it's pretty simple, really. To live a life worthy of the calling that you've received is to live in a manner that is absolutely consistent with the hope that we have in Jesus. To be completely humble and, and to so such unity that people look at us and they see God. Oh, I thought it was going to be complex and hard. It's so straightforward. Except we all know it's not. It's anything but... So how does it happen? Well, actually, that's where Paul turns his attention from verse 9 through 13. And if it feels like we've gone from actually a, a, really, a paragraph of a really big idea to now something that just, as we read through it there, feels quite complex. We've got a quote from the Old Testament talking about Jesus descending and ascending, and it, it can feel complex. There's actually a very simple train of thought that Paul has running through here. I'll put it on the, on the, on the screen for us. Thanks, Joel. Just, just to help us to see in, in slightly different wording how Paul is actually running with a very simple idea. To enable us to live a life worthy of our calling, the victorious Jesus gives his people teachers of his word so that we can all play our part in growing together. To live under his mighty rule. We'll leave that up for a little while, John, just so people can jot it down if that's helpful. We'll come back to that. I want to, I want to unpack that together because that's the, actually a very simple idea, even though it, it looks more complex on the page here. And you might wonder, well, where's the idea of you know, the victorious Jesus and, and, and the, the idea of living under his rule? How does that come through here? Well, it's actually embedded in that quote that Paul makes from Psalm 68. Some of your Bibles might have a, a little footnote so that you know the bit in quotes there in verse 8 comes to us from Psalm 68. And a good rule of thumb, when a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, they're probably not just wanting to draw our attention to the specific words they're saying, but the context that they come from. In Psalm 68, that's all about the militaristic, the mighty victory of God over his enemies. The victory that God has won over his enemies, saving his people from death to life and bringing them to himself so that they might enjoy him and worship him. And you start to think, gee, that sounds a little like Ephesians, right? Bringing us from death to life, drawing us to himself. Psalm 68 is a really militaristic psalm. It's using lots of military images to describe God's victory over evil. Now to rule over all things. And I think in that sense, Paul's quoting from Psalm 68, on one hand to emphasise something he's already said before, that Jesus has conquered death and evil, and he now reigns over all things, and, and we enjoy that. But he's picking up on a really significant idea from Psalm 68 that this victorious king 
in the Old Testament God, now seen as Jesus in the New Testament. This victorious king gives us what we need to flourish under his rule. And so that's the context of verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. God gives us his word. Or more specific than that, he gives his church leaders who can make his word known. Did you see how that's actually the emphasis that Paul's got here? That cluster of gifts that are given are those who bring and administer the word of God. So to recap, we're saying, well, to live a life worthy of our calling, we need to live in this, this humble unity. And God makes that unity, that humility and gentleness and patience and love possible by giving different kinds of gifts. And here Paul is he's focusing on the ministry of the word. Now some of those gifts, like the apostles, that, that's a very specific role. They were the specific men who were taught by Jesus himself and they were witnesses of his resurrection. They announced the gospel with a very particular authority, such that what they wrote is now what we have in the New Testament, the very word of God that we receive as such. But others, a more general description of, of those people who bring the gospel to bear on God's people's lives. And they're not just people with special gifts, they are gifts given to the church, given with a purpose. And Paul then has this wonderful flowchart that runs through. In verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So verse 11, God gives some people with a particular ability to proclaim the gospel and, and teach the word as gifts to the church. That has a purpose of equipping his people, all his people, for lives of service, service, which has the further goal of the body of Christ being built up, which has the further goal, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, which he describes as a maturity that is, to quote him from the end of our passage there, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Which sounds like a lot of big religious talk, and you kind of wonder, what does that actually mean? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Well, some of you might have noticed that whenever Paul talks about being filled with God or filled with Christ, he said that a number of times in Ephesians. And in doing so, there's a common theme of affirming the authority of God. What God fills, he rules. So if you want to flip back and sort of think through this in the week to come, have a look at the, um, the end of chapter 1 where Paul is talking about the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. He rules over the church as a little mini picture of the rule that he has over all things. His rule over the church is a particular expression and a foretaste of his rule over the whole universe. So, to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ is to be completely filled with Christ, completely submitting to his rule. It's a life that is totally sold out to him, that is... It is consistent with the calling that we've received because we are consistently living with him as Lord. So, we've got this up on the screen here, right? To enable us to live a life worthy of our calling, the victorious Jesus gives his people teachers of his word so that we can all play our part in growing together. 
to live under his mighty rule. And before we move on, there are some really important practical implications of this. For one thing, the assumption is that on our own, we can't live a life worthy of our calling. We just can't do it in our own strength. Although we've been brought from death to life through faith in Jesus, we're still constantly drawn back to the ways of, of the old self, the ways of the world, the influence of the devil and the cravings of our sinful nature. That was the way that he summed it up in chapter 2. So the simple reason that God needs to give us instructions like, in verse 2, be completely humble. Why does he have to tell us that? Because we're not naturally humble. We're a proud people. Our natural inclination is to return to the ways of our old self. So we can't live a life worthy of our calling in our own strength. We need God to be constantly equipping us for lives of service rather than lives of selfishness. And the way God does this is through the ministry of his word. So you use the image that that we see at the end of chapter 2 where God describes the church as being built together to be a house where he is. Well, if you and I are each a a lump of rocks that God is going to kind of incorporate into that building, the scripture, the Bible, that is God's chisel that he uses to bring us into shape that we might be this glorious house that he is in. And that also brings us to the second reason why we can't do this on our own. Because we can only do it with one another. Do you see here that all of God's people are equipped for works of service? And that word service, that could easily be translated as as ministry or even worship. You see, ministry isn't just something that a few experts do. It's something that all of God's people are involved in. Some people are gifted to teach the word, such as pastor teachers listed here. But that's just a means to equip all of God's people for the shared work of building up the church. And to use a sporting analogy, I think some people think that coming to church is a little bit like going to a game of tennis, where you know the grandstands are full of people watching just a couple of experts sort of strut their stuff down on the, on the, on the platform. When actually, if you want to take a different sporting metaphor, coming to church is, is much more like a footy game. Where you've got, so you got a team of 18 and, and many more besides. We're all on the pitch together. We're all in this together. We've, with some playing coaches that are, that are helping to keep things in shape and, and, and clarify our perspective and our direction, yes, but we're all in this together. And if there's anyone in the grandstands, it's, it's not people in church, but actually the onlooking world, our friends and family and colleagues and neighbors that look on and get a glimpse of the power and the grace of God. So, because Paul loves to mix his metaphors, I'm going to just keep doing it right. You can imagine church as a ministry construction site that is full of apprentices. We are all being constantly equipped by the word to, to collaborate in the building project together. And so finally, we come to that really graphic image of verse 14. Of infants being tossed about in a stormy sea. Because if it's felt like God has been challenging us to to pick up the tools and and to get to work, well, that's because he wants us to see how how terrible the alternative is. Reading verse 14. Then, if all God's people are serving, building up the church, then 
We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful skin. There have always been, and there will always be, people who have said deceitful things, false things, that would throw God's people off course. We hear them in the voices outside the church, whether it's in the media, raging against the church, or at other times, people simply sounding very sensible, but offering a totally different perspective on life to what God gives us through his word. At other times, some of those voices will come from within the church itself, teaching a message that is not consistent with God's word, diminishing our confidence that it is in his word that God makes himself known and he builds us up. But the answer to all of that, whether it's from outside or from within, is not to sort of stick your fingers in your ears and, and hope that it'll all go away. It's not to stop listening entirely. It's to be careful about who you listen to. Verse 15. This is such a beautiful picture of what we're called to be and do. Instead of being tossed around by every alternative teaching, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So friends, do you see what's going on here? At one level, God has given particular uh, people as gifts to the church to preach and to teach the gospel and, and to equip God's people for various works of service. But at another level, all of those works of service, every aspect of the ministry that we engage in, is actually to, to support the ministry of the word to one another, speaking the truth of the gospel as we share life together. Now, I do want to make an aside because sometimes people read this and say, well, speaking the truth in love, well, that just sounds like that's just an excuse for being rude. It's a little bit like if, as long as I begin my sense of saying, brother, I, just, I say this in love, but it's like the classic, I don't mean to be rude, but followed by a rude statement. Uh, that's, that's not actually what Paul's got on view here. We speak the truth in love in the sense that it is in the context of of loving relationships. The church community, as God intends it, is a, it is a place of loving relationships and that in the context of those relationships, we speak the truth, not just a random truth, your shirt looks terrible. <laughs> the truth. I wasn't pointing at anyone, it's just a general gesture in that direction. <laughs> we speak the truth of the gospel into the circumstances of our lives. And that implies a couple of things that are really good for us to reflect on. First, if it's not obvious, we need to be in a relationship to do this. You can only do this if you're sharing life together, if we are in that realm of love, with all of the ups and downs of life, such that there is a context of relationship in which we can speak the gospel into each other's lives, into that anxiety that you're wrestling with, into that pride that, that is just rearing its head again, into those, those struggles and griefs that you are longing to put into perspective. So there is a great ministry here highlighted for us in simply showing up, in being present on Sundays, in making sure that you get to growth group at every opportunity. I mean, life happens. We fall ill, we take holidays. That's, that's okay, but don't ever underestimate 
the ministry of simply being present. Which is also why it's worth the effort. Good on you. When it's minus 15 and sleeting outside, you are here. And I'm sure we've all noticed the neighbours on their front deck, perhaps not today, let's be honest, on a sunny, a sunny summer day, a Sunday, as they, as they sip their coffee and, and sit back with the Sunday paper, and we think, gosh, that looks nice. We've all felt the fatigue as we rush through dinner to get to growth group on a Wednesday evening when, when everyone else is bunkering down for hump day in the middle of the week, just pushing through to the weekend. But it's worth showing up because... We speak the truth in love as we share life together. Okay, secondly, I think this is something that we're actually called to offer to each other and to be willing to receive from each other. It's what it is to do life together as a church. So it's a challenge for us to take our conversations further. So for example, I love our conversations over coffee to go beyond merely just asking, oh, how's work going? But then to talk with each other about how the gospel impacts how that's going, whether it's great or really stressful. When we've shared, because I love that we do here at Ryan, when we've shared our ups and downs in big days, let's care for each other well by not only kind of encouraging each other with just the simple support that, that even the world comes from, but actually pointing each other to the hope that we have in groups that totally transforms that, that diagnosis or that unemployment or, or even that wonderful celebration in a different perspective. But friends, I hope you're sitting there thinking, Chip, that kind of makes it all very real. That's hard to do small talk. I'm a big fan of small talk. Small talk's great because it actually lets you get to the big talk. So don't let me, don't hear me sort of knocking that. But it, it does actually paint a picture for us of a wonderfully rich community in which we're open and we're, and we're vulnerable with each other. And it actually means working hard at being bold ourselves, both in what I share and in how I love the people that I'm talking to. Well, third and final, I think it is so helpful. This is, this is sort of the passage that I love that highlights that there is something for everyone to do. Some of us will teach the Bible, maybe from up the front. Others will do it in, in the context of our kids' ministry or our growth groups or, or sitting down one-to-one. Some of us will teach the Bible. It's not just to impart knowledge. It's to equip all God's people for lives of service. But all of us, we're, we're called, even we're invited, to roll up our sleeves and, and to get on the tools and to share in the privilege of building up God's church. <coughs> Some do it on the, on the sound desk like George today, and that is obviously enabling you to hear me. Some of us set aside time to visit the sick, to encourage them in the hope of the gospel. Others will serve on the coffee cart. But friends, let me assure you, if you're out there, that is not just about giving someone a tasty hot drink. That is a wonderful gift to this church to enable the kind of context where people enjoy chatting and sharing, hanging out and speaking the truth. There is something for everyone to do. Because, and I'll finish up following Paul's lead using as many mixed metaphors as I can, that is how we keep our roots deep in the love of Christ. That is how the body grows. That's how God builds his church. Let's pray.
Loving Heavenly Father, we have to use so many images because it's, it's actually hard to grasp just how wonderfully rich and extravagant your work is amongst us. That you would that you would reach out to any of us and bring us into your family is kind of mind-boggling. That you would throw us all together and, and somehow not only expect, but you promise to, to help us to get on, to live together, to share life in such a deep way that we can speak the truth of the gospel into each other's circumstance and heart. Father, if we genuinely pause and reflect on it, we see what an incredible undertaking that is, but what a joy and privilege that it is to be a part of. That we don't need to go through life tossed and turned and going every which way and, and gasping for breath because the, the next wave of life has crashed over our heads and, and we find ourselves steering towards the rocks. But instead, you give us this wonderful privilege of shining the beacon of, of hope and light on the goodness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And by your Spirit, you enable each of us to play a part in pointing each other to Him, in building up your people, in welcoming others in, in this wonderful building project that you are the master architect and engineer and facilitator of. So, Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. And ask that you would help us all, every one of us, to sit under the goodness of your word, that we might grow in service, that we might delight to live under your good and gracious rule. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, at this point, Sally's going to come forward and continue to lead us in prayer. Thanks.